I, I use the term guest loosely, but we do have a guest speaker today because not really a guest. He's been around Calvary longer than most of us. Uh, and so, so excited uh, to have Bob Shank with us today. Um, I did want to say a couple things before he comes up about him. I've been so blessed by him and his generosity, even to me and his love and care for our family, uh, as well as his generosity to our church into the world at some level through his ministry. I kind of think of him as like, you know, you talk about like a football coach, like Bill Belichick's coaching tree, you know, and the people that are now coaches of all these other teams. And you see that that's called like the coaching tree. And I think that's a lot what happens with Bob. He has inspired and mentored and developed and supported through his ministry. So many ministries, countless ministries around the world doing incredible work. And I remember even Bob saying to me when I became the pastor, he said, Eric, I'm part of Calvary Church. All these ministries that we support and develop that's Calvary Church's ministry, and I love that heart. And so it's really cool to see uh, everything that Bob's been involved in. But when he comes to talk to kick off this series on Journey of Generosity, what I most love about Bob is that Bob doesn't just talk it, Bob lives it. And I will tell you that I know kind of like the behind the scenes, and he lives it more uh, than anyone else in so many different ways. And he's the real deal with his family. He's the real deal uh, with just the people that he encounters. And so we are blessed to have Bob Shank come to share with us from God's Word today. Please welcome him, Bob Shank. Now, did the intro come out of my time or yours? <laughs> yeah, no, no, your time. My time. <laughs> Good morning. Wow. I was uh, a senior high school 50 years ago this fall when most of my Christian friends at Santa Ana High School went to Calvary Church, and I said, I think I will as well. So I landed here 50 years ago, and I'm thinking about staying because <laughs> my grandsons are bigger than I am, and they won't let me leave. Anyway, I'm delighted to be here. Wow, what a privilege to uh, think with you as we start this month devoted to generosity about um, the family model that we're living under with the God of heaven having invited us into his family. I think our uh, whole month is going to be um, devoted to unpacking what David understood when he wrote this Psalm 37. I know he's a Bible character, so we don't think he's real, but 3,000 years ago, he was a middle schooler working in the family pasture when the biggest spiritual name in Israel came and said, you're going to be the next king. He was a high schooler when he took on Goliath and beat him. And for the next 15 years, he went from hero to... um, kind of a um, on-the-run, uh, he was a, uh, a, a man that God's hand was on, but Saul wanted him dead. He was 30 when he became king, and for the next 40 years, he lived a life that we know more intimately than we probably know about our grandparents. He's nearing the end of his life when he writes these words, I was young, and now I'm old. Yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. 
They are always generous and lend freely. Their children will be a blessing. We have a risk even going into this series this month. The enemy would love for us to dismiss it as irrelevant to us because here's where our natural mind goes. A conversation about generosity, that's for the rich. And yet, David reminds us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that it's a conversation for the righteous, not for the rich. And that when David wanted to characterize what righteousness looks like, the number one thing he raises as an attribute is the demonstration of generosity and that that generosity becomes multi-generational to the degree that the children of the righteous are pipelines through whom God sends blessing. First blessed and then blessing. I want to think with you this morning about God's plan for his children. How do we live eternal life in a dying world? That's the question. And I want you to understand with me that God has given us a responsibility as sons and daughters of the Most High God. We are not simply passive, um, sort of pulled along in the mainstream, but we are given responsibility for initiating our growth in terms of our faith. Paul writes to the Philippians, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continuing to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Boy, Paul would remind his readers frequently that our salvation did not come because of works, But he doesn't miss a beat when he says that once we are in faith, the thing that follows are the works that we are to do that live out the potential of who we now are. And it always begins with salvation. If I were to portray this uh, in a graphic way, your life did not begin until you said yes to Jesus. Where were you and how old were you when that happened for you? For me, I was five years old. Our family church was the Evangelical Free Church at Rate and McFadden in Santa Ana. It was the second week of May, 1958. Paul and our pastor, preached a simple message of the gospel. I was in the main service and heard it, and when he gave an altar call, I think I was the only one that responded. Paul sat with me on the front row and led me to Jesus that morning. I tracked Paul down about seven years ago, retired in Mesa, Arizona. We corresponded. I sent him a note, and the note arrived the day that Edie, his wife of, 20, of 72 years, died. We connected in the weeks that followed. I flew over and took him to dinner and spent an evening and told him, thank you, I hadn't seen him in 48 years. But I wanted to thank him for what he had done in leading me to Christ. Where did it happen for you? Whether you're five or whether I spent last week a whole day with a man who uh, began his spiritual journey at age 70, and he was at the same place at age 70 that I was at age five, just getting started. Jesus said to Nicodemus, a man who was a high-ranking religious official, hey pal, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. This is not something that you join, it's something that you accept. And Paul recognized that when he wrote to the Ephesians and said, listen, 
It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. It all begins with salvation. It started for you. It started with me at the moment when we bow our knee to the Christ of Calvary who offers new life and forgiveness if we simply by faith believe. It begins it all. But it doesn't end there. We grow through discipleship. To put it in a portrayal that um, makes it simple for me, what begins at salvation is not supposed to end there. And we undertake a, a, a growth process that takes us from infant to mature, from unrighteous to righteous, or to use Bible language, from unholy to holy. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, in your family system right now, at any generational level, do you have anybody that is at the infant level? Infants, those are people, uh, full rights humans, who uh, cry for no apparent reason, uh, demand to be fed at the hours and moments that are convenient to them, are, are known to uh, make biological messes in their pants and expect you to clean it up and will not sleep at the appropriate hours. You know anybody like that? You know, we put up with that if they're 12 months old. It's a little less winsome if they're 12 years old. There's a point at which being an infant is no longer acceptable. But you know, we have to recognize that there's a growth process that's in, embedded in our Christian experience that God intends would be undertaken in a deliberate way when we've come to faith and have that moment of salvation. It's discipling when Paul writes, therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Here's a remarkable observation that most of us are at first blush uncomfortable with. And that is that Growing up in the family of God involves us moving from infant to maturity, from unholy to holy. And that that maturing process does not propose that we become perfect in this lifetime, but perfected. Meaning we're always in progress, but there is a point at which we've reached a level when we can now be used. Paul knew about that as he wrote to the Ephesian church and said, it is God who gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and the cunning and craftiness of evil men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth and love, we will grow up in all things unto him who is the head, that is Christ. We're supposed to be enough like Jesus that we meet the test of holiness that allows us to take the next step. I know a lot of people who have um, just seen the gravity of what that represents, and they presume that the last step in their Christian experience is to undertake discipleship, but that it is a process that will never be finished, that there's never a next step in this lifetime. But I'm asking you this morning to recognize a next step that God has in mind. That we begin with salvation. That we then grow through discipleship. But there is a moment in time when we reach a level of maturity that qualifies us to participate at a higher and more significant level. And it is that moment that we are asked to surrender to sacrifice. 
once holy, what's the next step? Friends, I I, I want you to know there is a next step. Paul equated it to the human experience when he said, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Paul's setting us up for the kind of insight that he would write later to the church in Rome. That once you have grown to a point of maturity, is there a next step? And Paul writes in that light as he undertakes a passage that we're familiar with, but I wonder if we grapple with it and lean into it in the manner that he intended. Here's what he wrote, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, Paul argues that once holy, it's now time for a next decision. And the language of the text in the Greek that stands behind our English translation is calling for a deliberate moment of decision, not just a general acceptance, but a moment of decision. One of the rising voices in our faith movement in America, David Platt, now a teaching pastor at McLean Bible Church in the D.C. area. But a few years ago when he was at Mountain Brook Church in Birmingham, Alabama, knew how to call that out. We do not have time to play games with our lives. And we don't have time to play games in the church. We do not have time to waste our lives on a nice, comfortable Christian spin on the American dream. We have a master who demands radical sacrifice. A mission that warrants radical urgency. So this morning, by the grace of God, pray on the authority of the Word of God. I want to call you to forsake dreams and plans and possessions and houses and cars and ideas of a nice, safe, comfortable American Christian life. I want to call you to forsake it all in radical abandonment to Jesus Christ for the sake of His glory among all peoples. We take Jesus, we twist Him into a nice middle-class American Jesus who looks like us and thinks like us and talks like us. And here's the danger. As we take Jesus and we craft him into our own image, then the reality is when we gather together in our churches to sing our songs and lift our hands, we are not lifting our our hands to and worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. We are lifting up our hands to and worshiping ourselves. And so what happens when not just pastors or missionaries, but when every person among the people of God, when every single one of us is using the gifts and skills and passions and resources that God has entrusted to us to advance the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth? Brothers and sisters, the gates of hell cannot stop the advancement of God's kingdom when that becomes a reality all across the church. 
when we are all across the board sacrificing our lives for a mission. You know, the truth is, I'll tell him you clapped. Truth is, when we come up to the moment where sacrifice is the reasonable next step, many opt out. In fact, it's not unusual to find in the context of church communities, people who have said, you know what, I don't think I want to go there. And they join a virtual community of sanctimony. Though by now, they should be mature enough to take the next step. Instead, they take a step away. The writer of Hebrews had that in mind when in the fifth chapter, he wrote, we have much to say about this. But it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. You see, sanctimony is pretty widespread among people who have been around long enough that they've heard all the verses they've unpacked all the sermons, they have been in all the classes, but they're making a hypocritical show of religious devotion, piety, or righteousness. Everything's there except for the sacrifice that is supposed to be. Calvary Church is a church where we have a profound cultural history of men and women who have stepped into that place of sacrifice and said, I'm all in. Some of them have ended up on frontier missions fields, and for the church's history, we've populated the front lines of the Great Commission around the world. That isn't just something that happens as a byproduct. It's something that happens as a central part of who we are as a church. And I'm delighted that our missions conference emphases multiple times during the year will put those men and women who have made a deep sacrificial commitment to the Lord Jesus. But we're surrounded here, and the reason I've been here for 50 years is the people that I have looked up to as people who have taken that option that God would present, and they've said yes to all in. One of those, a mentor of mine in my early adult life, Lauren Grissette. Lauren never went to the mission field, but he helped to send a whole lot of people there. His mission field was right here, and Lauren was a mentor to many. He, I was honored that he was a mentor to me. He sucked me into the Christian Businessmen's Committee movement, and in my early 20s, there I was, and I'll never forget the day It was in 1976. I was the chairman by, uh, Lauren had cooked the books and thrown the election and I'd become the chairman. And we'd we'd just had an outreach luncheon at the Santa Elks Club. Colonel Nimrod McNair was in from Atlanta. He was a distinguished um, military hero who had gone on to some great leadership assignments. And Mac had been in town to share the gospel in a clear manner with a hundred or so alpha male entrepreneurs in a luncheon environment where in an hour they were fed and then they were challenged to do business with the God of heaven through a decision to accept Jesus as their personal savior. How do you do that in a work day? 
I watched that room of men under a spell from Mac as he shared that truth. I could take you back to the place in that parking lot where before I started my car to go back to the office, I prayed, God, if you would ever allow me that kind of impact and effectiveness with a room full of peers, I'm all in. That was the same year that my father-in-law, I married into a family business and had been working with Jack for about six years at that point. That was the same year when he gave the baton of leadership to me. And there I was with 200 employees and um, a power position that um, did not bespeak my age, but bespoke his confidence in me. And at the very moment when I had a path forward that could have just been sort of self-serving for the long haul, I said, God, I want to figure out what you want for my life. And I was under the influence of men and women who at Calvary Church had modeled that for me. Friends, let me tell you, that's a deliberate decision, but it is a decision. You don't have to do that to go to heaven, but you have to do that to take very many people with you. It was a decision that I have never looked back on and have never regretted, but I can tell you that from that moment forward, things began to happen in my life that had never happened before. And for the first time, I came to understand what stewardship was. Let me tell you how it works. Biblically, if you're still growing up in terms of your faith, discipleship is the right thing. And part of being discipled is beginning to understand that all that is in our pocket is there because of God. And part of discipleship is learning the basics of the Christian faith. And one of the basics of the Christian faith is getting... um, consistent in accepting the responsibility of tithing. And tithing is simply 10% of what comes to me from the gross. 10% goes back to God as the first dollars out. Once they're in my control, they go back to God. Now, discipleship is not stewardship. Tithing is stewardship with training wheels. Stewardship is when you graduate from the training wheels and you move into the place where it's not just a dime on a dollar and it's not just financial. Stewardship is when you step into the world where all that I have, all that I am managing and controlling is not mine but God's. All of my time, all of my talent, all of my relationships and influence all of my resources are his, not mine, given to me to manage for his purposes, not for my own enjoyment. And when that decision is made, a significant milestone in your life has been reached. In fact, what Jesus talked about incessantly begins to become personal. Jesus used parables to get difficult concepts in workable terms. And many of his parables had to do with stewardship. The great story in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, he said, well, be like a man going on a journey. He called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. And after a long time, the master returns and settles accounts with them. Earlier in his ministry, he told a story that the farmers would understand All they had to work with was seed, but they were supposed to be careful about where that seed went, the first soil, the second soil, the third soil. Some people will just resist and reject. Some will 
act like they're interested, but be shallow. Some will get on board, but they'll be conflicted. But he said the one that really mattered would be the person who hears the word and understands it and produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. His goal was not to make farmers more productive. His goal was to make a farming community understand what it meant to sow the truth of God's word and see the response of people who are embracing faith in Jesus and populating heaven. Because friends, that's what we're here for and the enemy is against it. During the years that we spend in discipleship, the enemy is against it, but he doesn't have to give a lot of time to that. Why? We are our own worst enemy. Our struggle is against the flesh. We hear this language when we talk about the New Testament model frequently. We're struggling with our own evil desires and sophisticating those desires and becoming mature is about the suppressing of a natural inclination that is sourced in Adam, not in Jesus. And getting to a place where our appetites no longer rule the day, but a model of righteousness that comes from God begins to prevail. Our battle at that, that segment of our lives, that era of our lives, is with our own worst desires. Boy, when you walk through that sacrifice moment, let me tell you, you've got a new enemy. And it's now front and center, be prepared for the attack, because the enemy will not release lost people to redemption without a fight. And that fight is undertaken by those who are there ready to put it all on the line. When you join the military forces of the United States, you don't get them to sign a limitation on where they'll send you and what you'll be willing to do. You are all in and you are dispatched on the basis of where the need will be and willing to die for what you're there to defend is the charter. And that's not much different than the army of God. You have to know this, that in the business world, we talk a lot about metrics. When we talk about stewardship, are you talking a better game than you're proving? Stewardship is about what am I doing with my talented time? Not just throwaway time, not just showing up as a warm body, but the gifting that God has given to us, is it defining my place of service? Is it the environment in which I can produce leverage of major kingdom impact. And then the question of financial resources. The question is not what would I do if I had more. The question is what would I do when I have what I have? Because until I can prove to God what I would do with what I have, there's no evidence that he will give me more. But if he does, it's not as a reward in this lifetime. It's a responsibility in this lifetime. How do I know that I'm on point? Just one thing, redemptive fruit. Is there evidence that people are coming to new decisions about God in heaven and his son, the Lord Jesus, through the time and the money that is flowing through me? Why is that even important? Friends, because there is a day in our future, in our mutual future, when the ultimate, when the last step, the recognition with rewards will occur. What began with salvation and moved through sacrifice ends up at the seat. It's the seat that the Apostle Paul talks about. We must all appear, he said, before the judgment seat of Christ, that each may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. 
We try to persuade others. Friend, there's a next step for all of us in our journey. If you haven't come to the moment of salvation yet, you've come to the right place. Before you leave this building today, don't leave without a certainty that you are headed for heaven because you've received the free gift offered through the Lord Jesus. Don't leave without it. My friend, are you mature? Are you far enough along that you are usable to God, that you are more, more holy than you were, that sacrifice is the next step? If you've been through sacrifice, are you fighting the good fight? Are you seeing results? Is the fruit occurring? Let me tell you why that's important. Because this journey from salvation, where we met Jesus as our Savior, takes us to that place where we stand at the moment of sacrifice and decide, will he in fact be our Lord? Here's the great news. When you say yes to that, you welcome rather than fear. The day once, once Paul got this understanding, it became a driven motivation for him to share it with others. That there is a reality there that there is a rewarder waiting to see us. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The last words of Jesus are on the last page of the last book of your New Testament. Revelation chapter 22, the Lord Jesus, the last words he uttered to John before the revelation finished are telling. Here's Jesus to Bob, Jesus to you. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they've done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I've found that there's always a curiosity. What is God's plan for you? What is God's plan for me? How can we find it? I will declare to you with the certainty that is founded in the Scriptures that it is first to begin with salvation, to grow through discipleship, to reach the moment of surrender, and it is sacrifice, and then to serve through stewardship. Friends, let me just tell you, what we give during our discipleship period to the tithe level, that's not generosity. That's faithfulness. That's not doing what we choose to do. It's doing what we've been commanded to do. Generosity is evidence of stewardship. It's not training wheels. It's Tour de France. It's serving at a level that God now knows he can trust us and we move in that trust. And let me declare to you in the strength of what Jesus and the Apostle Paul and the writers of the New Testament confirm over and over again, there is a day when we will stand before the Lord Jesus and perhaps heard the words, we're done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with little. I'll make you ruler over much. Enter into the joy of your master and your reward. What's your next step? The most quoted verse of the New Testament, God so loved the world that he gave. And this month, we're going to learn about how to become more like him. Pray with me, would you? Father, the Lord Jesus did not come and die just for us. 
He came and died for us so that we could join him in carrying that profound message and the, the truth that changed our lives. Carry that to the ends of the earth. God forgive us for having uh, slowed our progression in a process that you placed in, in front of each of us. God, I'm grateful that my salvation settled the question of my eternity in heaven, but that everything that follows as I work out my salvation will determine what I'll hear from the Lord Jesus when I arrive. And God, I live to hear well done, my good and faithful servant. And I know my friends in this great congregation long for the same thing. Help us learn more this month about how to be confident, sure, not only that we'll be in heaven, but they will, we will hear upon arrival the words that we long to hear. We pray for the confidence that truth gives us in Jesus' name. Amen.